And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December 13th. It is cold and rainy. Looks like it snowed a little bit last night. Just uh, made my morning trek and good lord. Should have stayed in bed. Well, and a lot of interesting things happened on this date. 1636, the Massachusetts Bay Colony organized three militia regiments to defend the colony against the Pequot Indians. That date's now considered the founding date for the National Guard. The um, American Civil War, for those that were Civil War buffs, today was the Battle of Fredericksburg, where Robert E. Lee defeated uh, General Burnside. The... uh, it's interesting. In our woke society, you can go from being a hero to uh, a racist that should be burned at the stake, according to the the wokest. People seem to forget. Lee was a Union Army officer, then a Confederate officer. And then for a short period, a union again before he became president of a university. In uh, 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Battle of Nanking, uh, was defended by the National Revolutionary Army under the command of General Tang Shengzi. It fell to the Japanese. And then came the Nanking Massacre, in which Japanese troops raped and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of civilians. Then in 1938, the Holocaust, the Duengam concentration camp opens in the Bergdorf district of Hamburg, Germany. 1939 saw the Battle of the River Plate, fought off the coast of Uruguay. First naval battle of World War II, the Kriegsmarine Deutschland-class cruiser uh, Admiral Graf Spee engaged three Royal Navy cruisers, HMS Ajax, HMNZS Achilles and HMS Exeter. Exeter was uh, sunk, I believe. The uh, German ship was damaged, uh, not completely, but it damaged its fuel system, so it went to a, a neutral port. And uh, the neutral country gave them 72 hours to to uh, make repairs and get gone. The Germans thought the uh, British had brought in a much larger uh, group of ships, so he sank his ship, found out that he was mistaken, and shot himself. And then 1943 was the massacre of Calavretra by German occupying forces in Greece. They shot every man and boy in the city. Well, it, uh, you know, much of the history of the human race revolves around wars. And unfortunately, it doesn't show any signs of stopping anytime in the near future. Now, I've talked at length about the fact I've written a good many books and I'm going to be writing some more and I've been talking about uh, ghost and almost every town you can imagine has um, stories of um, Unsolved Mysteries, Lost Treasures, Ghost. Yesterday when we ended, we were talking about the Philmont Scout Camp. Now the interesting thing about that, the location is somewhat wild and woolly itself. And it's um, basically uh, an adventure camp. 
you know, each group in uh, the base camp, or in fact, the area known as the base camp is a small town in, uh, in and of itself. It's got a post office, half a dozen chapels, two dining halls, a clinic, a store where the scouts can buy souvenirs and sundry camping gear that they forgot to bring, housing, which consists mainly of tents for about 900 staff and tents for between uh, 800 and 1,000 of the uh, scouts, or they call them trekkers. And they're organized into crews of 7 to 12, usually closer to 12, with uh, anywhere from 2 to 4 adult leaders. The contingent consists of one or more crews from the same council that travel together. Now, every day of the season, about 360 trekkers arrive at the base camp. And when they arrive, they're assigned a ranger, which is usually a young man or woman highly skilled in backpacking. And the ranger's task is to guide the crew through uh, what's basically registration to make sure that the trekkers know how to backpack and to teach them uh, Philmont-specific camping practices. And they um, are required to pick up a what they call a dining fly. And this is a 12-foot square tarp with two collapsible aluminum poles. And it's to serve as a rain cover for the crew's backpacks when they stop at various places. It's supposed to be set up as an A-frame with two opposite sides staked down in the middle held up by the poles. You know, many of the crews experiment with the use of trees and hiking poles and other devices to try to get a roomier configuration so they can uh, indulge in important activities such as playing cards. Now, crews also pick up several days' worth of Philmont food, and uh, they pick up cooking supplies, and they head out into the the wild blue. They they load on the buses, and they get shipped off to any of several trailheads. They're called uh, turnarounds because there's a loop in the road for the bus to turn around. Now, having covered a lot of what you might call the administrative side of uh, Felmont Scout Camp, let's talk about the ghosts or things that are only whispered about after the lights go out. And you, I'm sure, are not surprised to know that the Philmont Scout Camp is actually quite haunted. One of the ghosts that's been seen, in addition to the spirit of the shaman that haunts Iroka Mesa, has been uh, that of Thomas Blackjack Ketchum, only person ever hung in Clayton, New Mexico. He was also the only man ever hung for a train robbery in the entire state. The law under which he was sentenced and executed was later found to be unconstitutional, but that didn't do him a lot of good. Now, there's a story told by a former scout about uh, actually meeting Black Jack Ketchum while camping on the Philmont Scout Camp. He and several other scouts were backpacking through the mountains, visiting various historic sites, including an abandoned gold mine, a ghost town, and one of Black Jack Ketchum's outlaw hideouts. Now, this hideout was a large rock overhang, and scouts thought it'd be fun to camp there for the night. But their leader insisted they stay at a nearby designated site. Of course, there was a disappointment of being refused the opportunity for what they thought would be an exciting time. Several of the scouts decided uh, they were going to set up their tent several hundred feet away from the leader's tent, hoping they might have a chance to sneak back to the hideout later that night. About 11 that evening, when the rest of the camp was fast asleep, five of the scouts got their sleeping bags and went back to the what had been Black Jack's uh, hideout, set up camp under the overhang and built a fire, sat around talking about their trip. When the fire burned down to nothing more than red coals, the scouts settled down in their sleeping bags for a sleep away what was left of the night. The storyteller drifted off to sleep, thinking about... Uh, like Jack, and suddenly he was awakened by a noise in the bushes. 
said he felt like he was paralyzed. He couldn't move and tried to call out to the others, but he couldn't make a sound. Then he saw a cowboy dressed all in black come running out the bushes toward the hideout. He said the man was mostly solid, but some parts of him appeared uh, translucent. He said the man was filthy, with a tattered hat and clothes from the 1800s and terribly yellowed teeth. Face was red, glistening with sweat, with lots of facial hair, and held a revolver in one hand. Now, the cowboy was apparently unaware of the scout, but the boy was very scared as much by his inability to move as by the, the man that ran up. And as he watched, the, the strange, a strange fog came out of the tree line across from a small stream, and he could hear men yelling and uh, muffled gunfire. Now, the cowboy that had come running into the camp turned and fired his revolver six times into the trees and then ran and stood right over the scout. Now, the cowboy was wounded in the shoulder, and as he reloaded his pistol, he... He just uh, discharged the six-shell casings from his revolver that fell right on top of the boy. And as the boy watched in amazement, the casings disappeared as they fell onto a sleeping bag. The mysterious cowboy finished reloading his revolver and fired additional shots into the trees. And suddenly the cowboy seemed to become aware of the young scout. expression on the cowboy's face indicated the scout had just suddenly appeared right in front of him. The cowboy seemed confused and confounded and the scout was just terrified then the cowboy uh, uncocked and lowered his pistol and looked at the boy closely and said you're not supposed to be here and then he vanished well eventually the scout was able to go back to sleep but had to be shaken repeatedly by his fellow campers before he woke up the next morning and before they broke camp the boy told his fellow campers about the dream that he said he had and of course his friends were amused by the story but as he rolled up the sleeping bag he found the six shell casings lying in the dust later when they got back to the base camp the scout visited an old saloon where a photograph of Black Jack Ketchum was on display and that photograph showed the same man the scout had seen run into the hideout when he told his friends they brushed him off his setting him up for a big hoax, and the scout never told anybody about it again, but he did keep the shell casings. After he got home, he checked with a gun expert who said the shell uh, casings were dated from sometime around 1878, but when almost brand new condition and the gunpowder could still be smelled. In fact, the gunpowder was one that was used in the last century, but not any time recently. Well, the scout kept those shell casings for years, but unfortunately, after he moved away from home, his mother threw them out along with several other things the boy had saved, such as comic books and baseball cards. Mothers tend to do that. They don't understand the the importance of these mementos. Well, in Roswell, New Mexico, which is a place famous for the UFO uh, landing, or crash, if you will. There's New Mexico Military Institute on West College Boulevard. It was established in 1891 and became a state or territorial school in 1893. And its purpose then, just as now, is for the education and training of the youth of this country with a mandate by law to be of a high standard as like institutions in other states and territories in the U.S., it's known as sort of a junior West Point, I guess you could say. And the Mexico Military Institute's primarily an academic institution operating within the framework of a military environment. But in spite of the fact that it's a school that prides itself on looking to the future, it still has to deal with holdover, holdovers from its past. Now, the New Mexico Military Institute has a few, I guess you could say, interesting quirks. It doesn't use the phonetic alphabet J for Juliet for one of its troops for a very simple reason. They believe that it's cursed. Back in the 1800s, when the school was still an all-male military school in the frontier, Juliet troop uh, was on one of the was one of the troops to go out and defend the school from Indians and the Wild West characters. 
after one such involvement, uh, nobody from the Juliet Troop actually survived the encounter. Everybody was killed. Former students reported that a tower with a clock was built in their honor, and the letter J hadn't been used as a unique designation since that time. But to add another interesting designation uh, or dimension to this school, it said that on some days when the sun is just right, if you look up at the tower, you can see the faces in the rock of the boys who lost their lives defending their school, looking back down at them. And I've also heard stories about shadowy figures being seen moving across the parade grounds in the early hours of the morning. And there have been stories told by former students about strange sounds and voices being heard in empty rooms. Any institution with the extensive history this one does is certainly going to have stories. Then let's talk about Eagle's Nest, New Mexico. Located in the Moreno Valley in the midst of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Nestled between the state's two highest peaks, Baldy Mountain and Wheeler Peak, it sits at the junction of Highway 64 and State Highway 38. High above sea level at 8,300 feet, uh, this little village rests on the western slope of Baldy Mountain, which is an area very rich in gold rush history. Before the miners, the area was called home by the Ute and Hickorya Apache Indians who roamed the area in search of game and gold and feathers they used in their ceremonial worship. When Elizabethtown, which is just five and a half miles north, was in its heyday, the Eagle Nest area was utilized mostly for ranching and farming. 1873, Charles and Frank Springer founded the C.S. Ranch on the banks of the Cimarron River. In 1907, they applied for a permit to build the Eagle Nest Dam. About 10 years before the Springers could hire the engineering firm of Bartley and Ramney, uh, excuse me, Ranney of San Antonio to design and build the dam. And finally, in 1916, construction on the dam was begun and was completed in 1918 to store the surplus waters of the Cimarron River for power plants and mining and irrigation and a number of other uses. Most of the labor for building the dam was provided by the Taos Pueblo Indians. The largest privately constructed dam in the U.S., this concrete structure is 400 feet wide and stands 140 feet above the riverbed, nine and a half feet thick at its crest and 45.2 feet thick at its base. Supposedly, Eagles built nest on the sides of the new dam, and that's how it got its name. Now, the Eagle Nest Dam which was completed in 1918, as I said, is the largest privately constructed dam in the U.S. And it created Eagle Nest Lake, which varies between 1,500 and 3,000 uh, acres in surface, depending on the weather. Surrounding, uh, surrounded by rolling pasture and unbelievable mountains, the fishermen began to arrive when the lake was stocked with trout. And along with the fishermen, entrepreneurs arrived, building businesses and transforming this quiet farming community into a tourist mecca, providing entertainment to the visiting cowboys and fishermen and other tourists. Now, one of the biggest industries in this area was cutting and selling ice from the lake. T.D. Neal hired men to drive out on the, the lake and cut out block ice or stored ice houses filled with sawdust. Now, you got to remember, jobs were scarce in the area, and many families survived the winters by ice-cutting and trapping. In the 1920s, a little gambling was introduced to the area. Eagle's Nest became a popular spot along the uh, road from Santa Fe to Raton, where politicians and other travelers attended the horse races. Favorite stopover for the dignitaries, they were said to have caused quite a ruckus with their gambling and drinking and dancing. 1927, Walter Gant, an oil man from Oklahoma, hired a businessman by the name of William B. Tyre to oversee the construction of the grandest resort that Eagle Nest had ever seen, the Eagle Nest Lodge. Bill Tyre lived in a cabin on the Gant property and oversaw the many details of building this luxuri luxurious lodge when it was completed. Bill Tyre stayed on to manage the the lodge, which featured 12 rooms, a lounge, a restaurant, horseback riding, fishing, 
and hunting expeditions for the many travelers who stopped to enjoy its magnificent view of Eagle Nest Lake. Considered the finest lodge for miles, it soon expanded to include a guest annex that featured five studio suites with their own bathrooms and kitchenettes. They also connected the main building to the Casa Loma with a uh, walkway uh, lounge that they called the Loafer's Lounge. Local saloons um, welcomed the travelers, rolling slot machines out on the boardwalk early in the morning for to entice the gamblers. Judge Neblet, for whom the Colin Neblet Wildlife Area is named, was a frequent visitor, as well as several governors. And though gambling was illegal, it was obviously overlooked by the politicians. In fact, it had been said by several locals that when illegal gambling was first introduced to Eagle Nest in the 1920s, the local sheriff owned many of the slot machines in Eagle Nest, Red River, and Colfax County. However, since we first uh, wrote this particular story in the summer of 2003, there's been a story that Jerry Ficklin, a local historian and writer who once lived in Eagle Nest and spent many summers there between the years of 1945 and 1960, that this tidbit's nothing more than a legend with no documented support. However, knowing elected officials as I do, I do not doubt it for one moment. Yel Monte Hotel, which is now the Laguna Vistas, well, there's uh, Dobelli's Cafe, which now the building that houses Julio's, the Gold Pan, and Eagle Nest Lodge offered roulette and gaming tables, well as slot machines. In fact, these machines were found in many of the stores in the community. It was in its heyday during the 1930s, with disputes often resulting in shots fired back and forth across Main Street. Reportedly, one saloon owner, along the road that travels north Meagle Nest to Ottawild, was known to provide free wine to those who came through its doors. And the free pouring wine would inevitably lead to fights and discord among the rowdy customers, which the, the saloon actually advertised as free entertainment. Now, within Eagle Nest, as I mentioned, was the Laguna Vista Saloon, built in 1898. Locals called it the Gunny. The Monte was originally called, was allegedly built with stolen railroad ties, which are still visible in some of the rooms. Would-be innkeeper transported the petrified railroad ties from the from Ute Park to Elizabethtown for two summers, but when he returned after the winter, the railroad ties were missing in a New hotel been built in uh, Therma, which later changed its name to Eagle Nest. And behind the original saloon was a 17-foot deep hand-dug well and several ice houses. El Monte was one of the business, busiest saloons in the 20s and 30s when the politicians stopped over in the way to the horse races at Raton to partake in the many roulette, gaming tables, and slot machines offered in the saloons and businesses of Eagle's Nest. Sometime during that period that El Monte's name was changed to the Laguna Vista Lodge was operated by a uh, couple. By the name of uh, Jean and Pearl Wilson. And at this time, the Wilsons often had to protect their gambling profits when transporting them from the saloon to their living quarters. So they armed themselves with guns. Early in the 1950s, Bob Anita Sullivan bought the property from the Wilsons, leasing the restaurant to Walter Ragsdale, who operated it for several years. As Eagle Nest Lake's popularity began to grow with the tourists, the Sullivan's advertised for college girls to help staff the lodge, the restaurant, and the saloon, as the small village of Eagle Nest couldn't provide the staffing needed for the popular tourist destination. 1964, the new hotel was built next to the original hotel for additional guests. 1971, Ben Clemens bought the property from the Sullivans and continued to operate it to this day. Bob and Edith Sullivan's son, Robert, stayed on in Eagle Nest for many years and was honored for his 25-plus years as fire chief, counselor, and mayor. Edith Sullivan, who operated the Laguna Vista for about 20 years, was honored as the Grand Marshal of the July 4th Parade in 2003. She, uh, passed away May 19, 2004. So, with this build-up, you have to ask yourself, does this old hotel and saloon have ghostly visitors similar to those at the St. James Hotel in Cimarron? 
just a few miles down the road? Mr. Clemens would uh, answer that with a resounding yes, though he'd never personally encountered them. At one point, a psychic visited the property who counted at least 22 spirits hanging about the place. One employee reported to Mr. Clemens while she was in the kitchen, she heard the vacuum running in the dining room. But when she went out to investigate who was uh, taking advantage of the uh, available equipment, there was nobody there and the vacuum was still sitting still and silent. But she knew what she heard. Now, the current manager, whose name is Jim, also indicates that eerie things happen, such as the piano in the dining room sometimes playing when there's nobody there, and the dining room chairs pulled up next to the piano, as if somebody took a seat to listen to the music. Staff will replace the chair next to one of the dining room tables, only to find it later back in front of that piano again. Now, customers and staff have reported that a woman in dance hall dress often appears and then vanishes toward the side of the hidden staircase. Spirit said to be that of a woman in her, on her honeymoon with her husband enjoying a stay at the hotel. Her husband ventured out one day to go hunting and never came back. This distraught young woman was left stuck and destitute and was said to have become a saloon girl in order to provide for herself. Supposedly, it's her spirit that lingers in the hotel in search of her long-lost husband. No one ever determined what happened to him. His body was never found. An old staircase that led from the hotel lobby to the upstairs rooms has been boarded up. Most often, the ghost of Gunny appears at the site where this staircase used to be. Talking with a former employee of the Laguna Vista, Christy Dukes, who was a cook in the restaurant in 1999, she said that she encountered several spooky visits uh, from a spirit that is said to have once been a saloon girl in the old lodge. According to Christy, both her and her mother were listening to in the kitchen was anything other than classic rock or country music. And while Christy often liked to listen to rap would change the music, strange things would occur. On one such occasion, a marble rolling pin was thrown at Christy. On another occasion, pots and pans would fall off of the walls. Once, when odd things were happening, Jane asked Christy to turn off the music, but when she switched the stereo to the opposition, the music continued to play. He didn't unplug the stereo, no, it had no batteries. The music played on. Well, at this point in time, frightened, the two left uh, at the end of the evening, only come back the following day to a silent stereo. Apparently, whoever or whatever wanted to hear the music finally got their fill. The Laguna Vista restaurant dining room, it's in this particular room, which once which was once the hotel lobby that held the hidden staircase to the upstairs room that the ghost is most often encountered. What you might call the strangest story was when Christy brought her daughter, Rainy, who was about two at the time, to work one day. She'd put little jingle bells on her daughter's shoes so she'd keep track of her while she was working. Suddenly, Rainy walked into the kitchen very gently and slowly and Christy said she looked very odd when she asked her what was wrong. She said the lady told me to stop making noise. Christy asked Rainey where the lady was. Rainey let her mother into the dining room pointed at someone saying that lady. Now Christy couldn't see anybody, but Rainey insisted her mother take the bells off her shoes. Now the locals say when the hotel caught fire about 20 years ago and closed, that was about all, and that's about all they uh, would say about it. There's no doubt the old hotel caught fire because there are obvious signs of fire damage in two different locations at the old hotel, but the question remains, when did this happen? And was the fire the cause of the closing? At least one person has said that a later fire was started in a second location, probably by vagrants living in the old lodge, but still neither fire succeeded in demolishing this once wonderful luxury hotel. Just inside the front door, the Excuse me, just outside the front door of the lake, beckoned the, the guests for fishing and boating, and to the right are the remains of a man-made pool and a garden, as well as what appears to be stables. Several, several outbuildings are housed on the property, including private cabins and a caretaker's home. So what happened to this once bustling resort? Nobody seems to know, though it's said that when questioned on, one resident said that both his mother and aunt worked there, but they wouldn't talk about what happened. However, at least one person from Angel Fire speculated that the place had uh, become something of a speakeasy. 
and all manners of vices, including gambling and prostitution, and that was the, the reason the locals were reluctant to talk about it. However, this is rumor and speculation with no basis in fact from anyone associated with the Yellow Lodge, but that does leave you with the question, what happened? Then in Escondida, New Mexico, we have the New Mexico State Tuberculosis Sanatorium. Built by the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was um, a um, Depression-era federal agency that gave jobs to folks. And it opened its doors in 1932. Originally had 50 beds, but was expanded eventually to have 1,200 beds. Several stu- structures comprised this location. Originally, the site looked like the spokes of a, of a half of a wagon wheel when viewed from the air. The most predominant structures today are the dorms where the patients were housed. Altogether, there are nine wards for patients, and the main hospital is now hidden back behind the New Mexico State Police Headquarters. This building had a explosion-proof operating room with glass block windows. There's also a kitchen, dining facility, and a recreation hall where 16-millimeter films were shown to staff and patients. In the early years, the hospital did quite well. Service was described as outstanding by patients and staff alike. But that would eventually change. By October 1952, many unfavorable reports about the hospital had been reported. Alva Simpson, in a letter to uh, the state governor, claimed that the biggest problem was that patients released from the sanitarium had to be treated for improper nutrition and lack of sanitation. Shortly after this um, spate of letters went to the governor, the facility was closed. The old hospital was converted and became a battery manufacturing plant called Eagle Pitcher. And this factory operated for many years before it, too, was closed down. Today, this historic old facility is abandoned with piles of trash in front of the buildings. There's a bottle dump just west of the main site where there are mounds of old medicine bottles. Mexico State Police have also used the area as a shooting range, so spent brass from rounds fired by officers can be found around the, the dump area as well. This whole area has changed greatly over the years. Major change is a road that now runs through the site. Mexico State Police have also built a regional headquarters near the old hospital. People have, uh, who've been there in the evenings reported seeing glowing balls of light moving about the ruins of the sanitarium after dark. Unusual noises to include screams and shouts have also been uh, heard coming from the old dorm buildings. No one has yet, uh, at least reported, getting up the nerve to investigate, looking for the source of these screams. Then one of the most famous haunted locations in New Mexico is the St. James Hotel in Cimarron, New Mexico. Began life as a small saloon in 1873. Uh, the two-story hotel had been Now, as I was saying before, I had a kibitzer trying to put in her two cents. The two-story hotel had been in continuing operation since it was added to the saloon in 1880. Entering the St. James Hotel in Cimarron is like stepping back in time. The hallways of, this, of the guest area are decorated with deep red carpets and red brocade wallpaper. Small ventilation windows above the doors are hand-painted in different western scenes. Antiques, most original to the hotel, abound. Such wonderful pieces as a five-foot-tall iron candelabra, lamps, vintage chairs, a pump organ, even a Roulette table that used to be in the gambling area of the original saloon are scattered throughout the hallways. And on the walls are framed photos of the famous guests the hotel once catered to. The rooms are all named after former guests. For example, repeat customers such as Buffalo Bill Cody, Jesse James, and Zane Gray often chose to stay in the same room each time they visited. And these rooms uh, that were partial to uh, now bear their names such as the Buffalo Bill Cody Suite, the Zane Gray Suite. The history of this whole hotel is equally as fascinating. 1862, upon the recommendation of Ulysses S. Grant, President Lincoln appointed a young Frenchman named Henry Lambert as his personal chef, a position Lambert held until that fateful day in 1865 when uh, 
President Lincoln overstayed his uh, visit to the uh, Ford Theater. After Lincoln's assassination, Henry made his way west in search of gold. But instead of discovering gold, he discovered he could make a very good living cooking for the miners in a small New Mexico boomtown called Elizabethtown, or E-Town as it was referred to. While passing through E-Town, Lucian Maxwell, land baron in the New Mexico territory, had the opportunity to taste in Lambert's cooking. And he was so impressed, he offered Lambert a job cooking for him in nearby Cimarron. Henry, thinking cooking was a whole lot better than digging, accepted the offer and moved to Cimarron. 1872, while looking for, working for Lucian Maxwell, Henry began building Lambert's Saloon and Billiard Hall. It wasn't long before Lambert's saloon became wildly popular, catering to the cowboys and the traders and the miners and the frontiersmen and all the other who traveled this last leg of the Santa Fe Trail. Saloon did so well, in fact, that in 1880, Henry added 30 guest rooms and a St. James Hotel was born. Hotel considered at the time to be one of the most elegant, luxurious hotels west of Mississippi soon became as popular as the saloon was. And before long, the hotel guest registry read like a who's who the old west. Jesse James stayed there often, always in room 14, and always signing the registry with his alias, R.H. Howard. Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley and Cimarron, they both stayed at the hotel while planning and rehearsing their Wild West show. They took an entire village of Indians from the Cimarron area with them when they took the show on the road. Wyatt Earp, his brother Morgan, and their wives spent three nights in the St. James on their way to tombstone. After leaving the hotel, they made their way to the small town of Las Vegas, New Mexico, about 30 miles southeast of Cimarron, where they met and became friends with a gentleman by the name of J.J. Doc Holliday. Zane Gray wrote his novel Fighting Caravans while staying at the hotel. And then, of course, let's not forget Lou Wallace, governor of New Mexico Territory, who wrote uh, part of Ben-Hur while staying at the Cimarron, or the St. James, rather, in Cimarron. Other famous and infamous guests included uh, Doc Holliday himself, Billy the Kid, Bat Masterson, Kit Carson, Clay Allison, and Pat Garrett. Probably the most famous unknown person at that hotel was Bob Ford. Not familiar with that name? His claim to fame was the fact that he was said to have killed Jesse James, though there are many who say that was... Uh, a story made up, though that James started a new life. Not surprising with the combination of guests, the hotel boasts a violent history. It's said at least 26 men were killed in gunfights at the hotel. Ceiling the saloon, which is currently the dining room, still has 22 original bullet holes in it. Luckily, when Henry built the hotel, he had the foresight to add three feet of hardwood above the tin ceiling of the saloon to keep uh, stray bullets from penetrating the floor of the upstairs guest rooms, which is probably a good idea. As times changed, railroads began taking the place of horse and buggy, and mining and ranching became less profitable, and Cimarron's popularity began to dwindle. Eventually, the once popular and elegant St. James Hotel fell into uh, disrepair, and through the years it went largely uninhabited and passed from owner to owner until the mid-1980s when uh, this beautiful old hotel was purchased and restored to its former glory. Today, the hotel, once again a hotel, but uh, much of it, uh, much to its credit, it's far from being modern. No phones, no radios, no television. Almost all the furniture is original to the hotel, from the antique chandeliers to the beds and dressers in the guest rooms. Stay at today's St. James Hotel is certainly similar to a stay during the heyday of the Wild West. Second floor of the hotel is the most active location for ghosts and hauntings, with Stories of cold spots and the smell of cigar smoke lingering in the halls. Smoking, of course, is not allowed in the hotel today. Prior manager said, uh, you never see him, but you do feel and hear him. Another report from a former owner states that uh, she walked into the dining room and saw a pleasant-looking cowboy standing behind her in the mirror at the bar. Of course, when she turned around, there was no one there. The spiritual activity of the hotel has been... Uh, Featured on uh, such popular TV shows as uh, Unsolved Mysteries and A Current Affair. Now, one room that seems to have quite a bit of activity is room 18. And as the story goes, one night in 1881, the owner of the St. James was playing cards with some men in the second floor card room. It was getting late, and the men had imbibed a fair amount of whiskey, and the stakes were high. 
so high that confident he'd win, the owner bet the hotel. However, the guest at the hotel, Mr. Thomas James uh, Wright, also felt he had a winning hand and stayed in the game when all the others folded. And when all the bets were made and the cards were shown, Thomas James Wright was the winner. Satisfied with his win, he decided to retire for the night. As he made his way down the hall and began to turn the corner towards his room, he was shot from behind. He went on to his room, which is room 18, shut the door, and fell face forward on the bed and bled to death. Maybe the death of Thomas James Wright was so traumatic his spirit still remained locked in place. Whatever may be the reason, room 18 is considered the most haunted room in the hotel. It is considered so haunted, in fact, that nobody is allowed to enter that particular room, much less sleep in it. It's said that while residing in the room is P.J. himself, he was very angry, and he was something of a malevolent presence. Employees at the hotel say that nobody's allowed in the room because anybody, uh, whenever anybody goes in, something bad happens in the hotel. One former owner said she was pushed down uh, while in the room, and on another occasion saw a ball of angry orange light floating in the upper corner. Now, this room holds only a bed frame without a mattress, a coat rack, a rocking chair, and a bureau, which had been made a shrine to the Old West. Sitting on top of the bureau is a Jack Daniels bottle, a basin and pitcher, and a hand of cards, an Ace Copenhagen uh, tin, and several shot glasses. And on the walls, a bad painting of a half-naked woman. Others have said that uh, the real reason that the management wanted anybody to sleep in room 18 is that... Uh, there had been more than the average number of mysterious deaths in that room. And for those of a doubting frame of mind, there was a Thomas James Wright born in New Mexico in 1859, and one of the old guest registries does show that a T.J. Wright stayed in the hotel several nights in 1881. And it is believed that this is the same T.J. Wright who was shot in the back and died in room 18. Then we have the Mary Lambert room. One spirit that is believed to uh, haunt the hotel is that of Mary Lambert, who is the wife of Henry Lambert, the man who built the St. James. She lived many years in that hotel, gave birth to her children there, watched at least two of her babies die in that hotel, and eventually, on, in December 1926, she died there herself. People that work in that hotel call her the protector. They firmly believe her presence is still there, and they believe she watches over the hotel and the people in it. It's said you can often smell Mary's perfume when her presence is near, and many staff members, previous owners, and guests swear they've also smelled it. It's also said if you're staying in her room and you leave the window open, she'll tap on it incessantly until you close it. On another occasion, uh, a milky, transparent woman could be seen in the hallways. Does Mary Lambert still walk the halls of the hotel her husband built? There are many who firmly believe that. Now, the hotel employees of the St. James are given the option of living in the hotel. And one of the employees, a young lady, decided to stay in the hotel and was given the Kate Lambert room, which is the last room on the right at the end of the second floor family wing. This uh, room is directly across from the Mary Lambert room and directly next to room 18. The young lady was, has said that almost as soon as she began to stay in the room, she had problems sleeping. Many times every night she'd awaken, although there was nothing specific, such as a noise that would explain her being woken up. Due to her lack of sleep, she was usually exhausted the next day. And because of the hotel's history, ghost hunters and psychics often visit the hotel, so she asked one of the psychics to come to her room. Psychic told her that the spirit of T.J. Wright was trying to possess her. However, on the plus side, the spirit of Mary Lambert was uh, protecting her from T.J., Psychic told the tired young lady if this was a nightly spectral battle, that was what was waking her up. Young employee uh, liked the room in which she was staying very much and certainly didn't want to move, but the psychic told her she stayed in the room. Eventually, uh, T.J. would uh, succeed and possess her. Just to be on the safe side, this young lady moved to another room and found that she slept soundly each night, no longer waking up in the early hours of the morning. Now, in addition to the well-known spirits haunting the St. James, employees have reported that many non-specific hauntings occur on a daily basis. 
There are cold spots, things that are constantly falling off the walls and shelves, and the computer and the phone at the front desk behave erratically. Cameras and video equipment often break or don't work correctly. The dining room, which used to be the main saloon, still houses the original mirrored uh, bar. Many guests have reported seeing a reflection of a cowboy sitting at one of the tables under the look around discovered there's nobody else in the room. Hanging above the second floor landing is a large crystal chandelier. During restoration, one of the previous owners discovered that every time she'd turn it off before leaving, it'd be on again the next time she came in. This happened repeatedly, even though there was no one in the hotel to have cut it on. Since they were in the process of restoration, she thought maybe it was an electrical problem, but the electrician found nothing to account for the light coming on by itself. Now the staff just leaves the chandelier burning. 24-7. One employee who was working the front desk reported he was very clearly heard a high-pitched shriek coming from the far corner of the lobby. Looking up from his work, he was dumbfounded to see absolutely no one on that side of the room. Quickly looking around, his eyes rested on three other guests mingling at the other side of the lobby. Apparently, having not heard the loud scream, they were completely unfazed. So what caused the, squee- uh, the shriek? He never found out. And apparently the original hotel is not the only place with strange happenings. In the 1980s, a modern ten-room annex was built onto the hotel. Rooms in the annex have all the amenities, including phones and cable TV. It said there has been an unexpected, unexplained activity in the annex. According to one employee, there are two girls staying in one of the rooms in the annex who had an unusual experience. Seems that one of the girls was taking a shower when the other girl opened the bathroom door. The girl in the shower yelled for her friend to close the door and let her finish her shower, and the door shut. But a few minutes later, it opened again. By the time the girl got out of the shower, she did it happen three or four times. Angry, the work girl wrapped a towel around her and stormed out of the bathroom, prepared to yell at her friend for continuing to open and shut the door. To her surprise, her friend wasn't even in the room. Finally talked to her friend, Girl had been in the shower discovered that whoever or whatever had been opening and closing the shower door, it was not her friend, because she hadn't been in the room at all that uh, during any of the time the girl was in the shower. There's another, though, friendly spirit known to inhabit this old hotel. The owners have dubbed this spirit the little imp, as it likes to torment new employees in the kitchen and dining room. Described as a small man with a pockmarked face, the little imp's been known to Burst glasses, relight candles, move objects in front of nervous new hires. Even ghosts have a sense of humor. Then in Las Vegas, New Mexico, we have the Plaza Hotel. Byron Mills was was a, a prominent Las Vegas attorney and abstractor who owned the Plaza Hotel during most of the first half of the that uh, the. 1900s, arrived in Las Vegas in 1852, just after the Landmark Hotel was completed, and took over ownership of the property about 36 years later. According to the January 1945 issue in the Mexico Magazine, Mills was beginning to dismantle the hotel and sell its furniture in anticipating anticipation of demolishing the uh, the hotel. It was a three-story structure, so they could have gotten a pretty penny for it. Now, the article neglected to explain why he wanted to demolish it, but devoted considerable space to Mills' knowledgeable discourse on the hotel's history. Mills was even quoted as saying, I almost feel guilty about the demolition. certainly is an old landmark. But for reasons we just don't know today, Mills never followed through with his plan. Some speculate a disembodied Byron T., Wants the hotel today out of a sense of guilt. Others believe he remains because he loved the hotel more than he claimed in life. A third faction suggests the historic hotel's resident ghost simply enjoys the company of others, especially women, which may explain both the reported presence of a man coupled with a sudden scent of perfume. You know, a number of the stories of hauntings seem to come from room 310. And more than one lady traveling alone has reported the presence of a man in their room. Almost everybody would agree the spirit of Mills has a special fondness for women who are alone in their rooms and as well as traveling salesmen. 
One particular salesman had checked into his room on the third floor, dropped his bags, went directly to the bathroom. When he got out, he noticed the door's deadbolt was locked. He thought it was funny. He didn't remember having locked it. He then undressed for a shower, carefully putting his money under his clothes, neatly piled next to the sink. When he got out of the shower, he was startled to find his money now sitting on top of his clothes. Another employee who was staying in one of the third-floor rooms for a time tells that she was awakened in the early morning hours by a door opening and footsteps crossing the room. And she felt somebody sit down on the bed. Well, she immediately sat up, didn't see anything, tried to go back to sleep, but until 5 a.m. when her husband finally returned, she heard the sounds of someone pacing back and forth across the room. Other employees report smelling cigar smoke in the bar, hearing heavy boots walking when there was nobody there. Hotel bar is also the scene of another of Byron's uh, pranks. According to one story, there were a couple of devout Catholics who, after church one Good Friday, decided to go to the bar and have a drink. They were sitting on the patio, feeling a little guilty to be spending that holy day in such a frivolous way when a drop of blood fell out of nowhere, landing on a white tablecloth. They fled in horror, having indulged in liquor on Good Friday since that time. But it does give you pause for thought. Well, let's go to Cloudcroft, New Mexico, the famous lodge. Originally constructed in the rustic mountain community of Cloudcroft, New Mexico in 1899 by the Alamogordo and Sacramento Mountain Railway. It was owned and operated by the railroad and intended to be a resort for workers who were the byproduct of the railway's search for timber. The hotel was immediately successful. Its breathtaking location in the lushly wooded Sacramento Mountains offered a wholesome Welcome, cool retreat to literally thousands of heat-punished Texans. I mean, at that point in time, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Arizona weren't states yet. An article published in the Albuquerque Journal Democrat near the completion of the lodge in 1899 stated this beautiful building will be known as Cloudcroft Lodge, and its interior will be furnished with a lavish hand, but in keeping with the character of the place. Fireplaces with wide... Hungry mouths will sparkle, crackle, and dart forth. Welcome tongues to flame to hundreds of merry guests who will find new pleasure in life during the long, sultry summer. And let me tell you, summertime in this area can get rather, uh, shall we say, sticky. In 1908, the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad System, the lodge's new owner, advertised at the hotel, restaurant, dance pavilion, tennis court, Golf links, bowling alley, billiard parlor, burrow trips, and children's playgrounds were accessible for reeking rates of $3 per round trip. And the lodge rates were twelve fifty and up per week. Lord have mercy, I'd stay there. On June 13, 1909, a raging fire blazed through the lodge, utterly destroying it. By 1911, the lodge was completely rebuilt and reopened on its current site. Its appearances remain virtually the same since then. Historic, timeless gem, suspended in time. Over the long, distinguished history of the lodge, it's played host to numerous famous folks, including Pancho Villa, Gilbert Rowland, Judy Garland, Clark Gable. In fact, the last two carved their names into the wall of the lodge's tower, where they can still be seen. But by far the most infamous guest of all at the lodge is the, the ghost of the beautiful Rebecca. Now, Rebecca's become one of the most famous ghosts in New Mexico. This lovely young lady was a chambermaid at the lodge who reputedly disappeared from the premises sometime in the 1920s or 30s. They claim this restless ghost has made her presence known here ever since. She's said to be a gorgeous red-headed chambermaid who worked and lived at the lodge in the 20s or 30s. Similar to her fellow lodge employees, she lived in the employees' rooms, which were located in the basement at the time. By far uh, the best known, and by all, um, she was by all means a very friendly and flirtatious young lady, and everyone who knew her said she was unforgettably lovely. Now, some are rumored that Rebecca Moonlighting is a prostitute, although no proof of this claim ever has been found. Whatever the case, according to the story, her jealous lumberjack boyfriend caught her in the arms of another man at the lodge, allegedly in room 101, also known as the governor's suite, 
and became enraged. Shortly after this, Rebecca disappeared from the lodge, never to be seen again. Well, not alive anyway. However, because soon after her disappearance, people began to report uh, having some very strange, even ghostly experiences. Over the years, there have been many sightings of an auburn-haired apparition floating through the halls, a vision seen by both employees and guests alike. One guest heard scraping sounds in the hallway late one night and opened a door to see a red-haired woman in 1930-style nightdress rearranging flowers in a vase on top of an antique chest. Another guest was shocked when he went to take a shower only to find a vaporous female reclining in his bathtub. I think I'd pass on the bath myself at that time. There have also been reports of objects such as watches and ashtrays and silverware sliding across surfaces untouched, doors opening and closing on their own, lights and other appliances turning on and off by themselves, furniture moving about inexplicably, even faucets turning on and toilets flushing for no apparent reason. But maybe one of the strangest events happened one Halloween night when a man dressed in a tuxedo came into the lodge's dining room and sat alone at an intimate two-chaired table ordered two dinners, two glasses of wine. Everyone in the room watched closely as the man ate his meal and carried on a conversation with somebody who wasn't there. Nobody ever saw anyone sit with the man or even go near him, but at the end of his meal, both wine glasses and both plates were empty. Rebecca's manifestations are many, many. One of her favorite hangouts is the Red Dog Saloon, an old West-style saloon with rough-hewn walls and southwest decor which is located in the basement where the employees' showers used to be. It's a very active spot as the lights go on and off and other strange things happen. Uh, even more mysteriously, 1930s-era poker chips have been uh, mysteriously found in the middle of a floor that had been clear only minute, minutes before. Ashtrays move themselves and flames appear in the fireplace with no logs or other source of fuel. Lodge patrons have called the front desk to complain about the loud music coming from the saloon at uh, times when the saloon is empty and not even open. Others have reported seeing an apparition of a twirling woman uh, seen on the dance floor. One bartender claimed to have seen the reflection of a beautiful red-haired woman wearing a long dress in the, the mirror behind the bar. But the woman wasn't there when the bartender looked around uh, trying to find her. Another paranormal hotspot seems to have been found in the tower. Three-story structure stands tall above the lodge itself. The tower is kept locked with two levels of small sitting rooms with windows that yield a panoramic view of the mountains. Some have reported feeling cold spots in the presence in the tower. And the third floor, which is where the locked door leading to the tower can be found, is reportedly very paranormally active as well. Additionally, there's also been a lot of activity surrounding room 101, what's known as the governor's suite. Some have theorized Rebecca carried on her tryst in that room, or was perhaps even caught in the act there by her lumberjack boyfriend one fateful day. Whatever may be the connection, the lodge staff has gotten calls from room 101 when no one is in on the other end, even when no one is in the room at the time. Despite having a modern computerized phone system, phone calls from room 101 still continue. With well, a light in the ceiling fan just outside room 101 is also said to turn on and off. Former housekeeper claimed that after making up a bed, she'd come back only to find an indentation of somebody laid or sat there. Also said guest shoes would mysteriously move a few rooms down from where they were supposed to be. It seemed even in spectral form, Rebecca is a much fun-loving and mischievous spirit. To this day, employees and guests alike are still reporting strange and mysterious encounters at the lodge. But a number of reports that the toilets in the ladies' room have been flushing by themselves earlier uh, that uh, that particular day. Whether you believe in Rebecca or not, the lodge is still an amazing, unique place with a ton of fascinating history. Forest scenery and mountain views are heavenly, and the lodge itself is a graceful and timeless treat, lavishly furnished with the Victorian and country lodge decor of a bygone era. And there's even a fabulous restaurant called, uh, and what else could it be called but Rebecca's? Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. 
Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.